Psalm 16, a mictum of David. Keep me safe, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. Apart from you, I have no good thing. I say of the holy people who are in the land, they are the noble ones in whom is all my delight. Those who run after other gods will suffer more and more. I will not pour out libations of blood to such gods or take up their names on my lips. Lord, you alone are my portion and my cup. You make my lot secure. The boundary lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Surely I have a delightful inheritance. I will praise the Lord who counsels me. Even at night, my heart instructs me. I keep my eyes always on the Lord. With him at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body also will rest secure because you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead, nor will you let your faithful ones see decay. You make known to me the path of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence with eternal pleasures at your right hand. And our second reading from the Apostle Paul's sermon, it's an excerpt from his sermon at the Areopagus in Athens, Acts chapter 17, beginning with verse 24. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything, Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. From one man, he made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from any one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. The word of God for the people of God. The staff was brainstorming hymns to sing the other day in our staff meeting, and when Rejoice the Lord is King came up, both Linda and I perked up and said, yes, let's sing that. This was uh, the processional at our wedding 40 years ago, and so uh, you can just imagine Linda walking down the aisle while we're singing this song, Rejoice the Lord is King. Hymn number 40 in your supplement, please stand.
the combination of the Martin Luther King holiday weekend and today's sermon topic on the providence of God takes me back to a story that I have shared before also on a Martin Luther King weekend, but it's been, I think, about a decade or so. So many of you haven't heard it, and others maybe don't remember it. I was 11 years old. It was the summer of 1968, and my family had just returned from Pakistan, where I would, uh, they, were, they were missionaries, and I was the fourth of five children, still am, I guess. But I had an older sister and two older brothers and then a younger brother. So of my two older brothers, the oldest of them was 15 and a half. So having just come back from a foreign place, he wanted to uh, go investigate getting a driver's license. But with a mom and dad busy and I think only one family car, you know, it was like, okay, Doug, if you want to go get your driver's license, hop on your bicycle and go check it out, find out what you need to know. And so he and my next oldest brother, Jim, uh, rode their bicycles down High Street in Portsmouth, Virginia to find out about the driver's license. Now, they were probably somewhat naive about the racial tensions in our city. Remember, it's 1968, a very racially uh, split city uh, in terms of population, but also there were a lot of tensions going on during that time. And on their way back, they encountered a group of uh, African-American young men who were standing next to the sidewalk. And they would later say that some white boys had driven by in in a convertible and thrown bottles and so forth at them, and so they were angry. But in response to that, they, uh, they sort of uh, tried to hurt and harm my brothers, and they particularly succeeded with my older brother. One of them took a rope that was embedded with nails and struck it out at my brother riding his bicycle. It wrapped around his neck, it came across his eyes, and his right eye was permanently damaged, and his left eye actually had to be removed because of that. So for 50 years, my brother has lived with a significant visual handicap because of what happened on that day in the summer of 1968. One of the things I love about that story is that my parents never taught us racism out of that. They never taught us, like, this is what black people do. You need to not like them. In fact, my mother especially went out of her way to teach grace and forgiveness, both in terms of what she said in public and in private about that incident. But the story is relevant to this particular weekend because this is a weekend when Martin Luther King's life uh, and legacy reminds all of us of some very difficult and complex moments in our history as a nation, particularly here in the South. And I, for one, have preached nonviolence as his legacy. Um, we failed to put in the bulletin and announced today that there is a service this afternoon at 3 o'clock at uh, First Methodist Church for Martin Luther King Day. I'll be there reading one of the scripture passages. Would love to have you join us there. But here's the reason it's relevant to this theme of the providence of God, uh, which we'll address today. I remember as an 11-year-old what I said when I learned that my brother had been harmed in this way. And I remember almost nothing of direct quotes from my childhood and my adolescence. But this one, for some reason, I remember rather vividly. Because I said when I heard about it, well, maybe God didn't want Doug to get his driver's license. It was a sort of natural 11-year-old response to uh, articulate what both Christians and non-Christians are prone to say. There's a reason for everything. So what's the reason that this happened? And because I'm a Christian, I'm going to couch the reason in God terms. Maybe God 
had a reason for this bad thing to happen, and God didn't want Doug to get his driver's license on this day. So I want to ask you, what is your theology of why things happen? What is your theology applied to that incident? Do you think that God chose my brother that day for a life-altering injury? And would it affect your answer to that question if I told you that probably as a result of that, sort of a sympathy response, my brother got a job, the same brother, as a teenager with a telephone company that later was absorbed several times by larger companies, and my brother has spent most of his career in management uh, for a rather large corporation, albeit also because of his hard work and business acumen, but he has done very well, and he got started perhaps because that bad thing happened to him. So if something good comes out of something terrible, then is it easier to attribute to God? Or what if nothing good comes out of it? Let's think about Martin Luther King Jr. You know, for whatever you thought about him in the 1950s and 60s, and many people had diverse responses. Most people are now glad that we live in a culture that is far more colorblind. There's more work to be done, but we are more likely not to treat people on the basis of the color of their skin because of his legacy. And think about this. I could be wrong about this, but I'm not sure his legacy would have been as powerful and enduring if he hadn't been assassinated. So the tragic thing about his dying, is that actually maybe in some sense a good thing? So again, I'm raising the question, if bad things happen... And then good things come out of it. Is that a reason to believe that God is in charge? What about the times when bad things happen and nothing good seems to come out of it? Most of the time, of course, the issues in our lives are not that large. I've had more than the usual number of messages this week for some reason of somebody saying to me, wow, God really stepped in. This is what happened and, uh, and let me tell you, I really saw the hand of God in this. I actually haven't had anyone email me this week or text and say, something really terrible happened to me this week, and I know God was behind it. I'm so thankful to God that he's in charge of everything, including this diagnosis or this job loss or whatever. So the last two weeks, we've been talking about the first paragraph of the Apostles' Creed. I believe in God the Father Almighty maker of heaven and earth. And the Heidelberg Catechism, a 16th century Q&A about what we believe in the Reformed faith, follows its explanation of what it means that God is the maker of heaven and earth with the question, what good does it do us to believe that God is creator and in charge of everything? And the answer is that because of this, we believe in God's providence that he still upholds and rules all things by his eternal counsel and divine providence. This gives us comfort. And then it says, okay, what then is the providence of God? And again, quoting from the Catechism, the providence of God is the almighty and ever-present power of God by which he upholds as with his hand heaven and earth and all creatures, and so rules them that leaf and blade, rain and drought, fruitful and lean years, food and drink, health and sickness, prosperity and poverty, all things, in fact, come to us not by chance, but from his fatherly hand. So the Catechism says everything good... And everything bad is because God is the Father Almighty 
the maker of heaven and earth. So then what are we? Are we just like robots? What about free will? And don't things, some things just happen because of chance or circumstance or coincidence? And by the way, what's the difference between God's providence and fate? My son, who has a PhD in physics, reminded me one time that in physics, there's actually a principle that sounds very much like predestination or predetermination. Some physicists, without reference to God, believe that after the Big Bang, all the molecules just started bouncing around, and everything that happens is a result not of chance, but of the logical consequence of where those molecules go and how they connect and they bounce around, including what happens inside your head. So is it just fate? Are we all predetermined to have something happen, whether or not you believe that God is in the picture? That's the question for today's sermon. I hope I have your attention. So we're going to turn to Scripture, and we could almost literally turn to every single page or any single page in Scripture to address this question. Because every story in the Bible, every part of the Bible, is about two things. It's about God and it's about humans, right? And it's about the connection between the two. So we could almost take any one of those pages and say, what is God's part? What is the human part? And how do they connect? So we chose Psalm 16. It's one of the readings in our 150 days devotional book for this past week. And Psalm 16 is titled, A Mictum of David, and nobody knows what the term mictum means. In fact, scholars even debate what the phrase of David means. It could mean it was written by David. It could mean it was written for David. It could mean it was part of David's school. I'm just going to go with the assumption that it was written by David, but we don't know for sure. And the reason that's important is because of who David is. So he's the king, and he seems to be writing this at a wonderful sort of high point in his life. And he says, everything good in his life is because God did it, verse 2 of Psalm 16. My favorite line is verse 6, the boundary lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. I wrote a devotional about that last year for the United Church of Christ still speaking devotion. And basically I said, I'm amazed sometimes when I look around at my life, my health, my ministry, my wife, my family, you know, what I have. I mean, really, when you think about the ways in which people have suffered, some of whom I know personally and have ministered to personally as a pastor, I'm really astounded that the boundary lines have fallen for me in such pleasant places. I really do believe that I have lived a blessed life. And I know it's not all by chance, and I know I'm not to take credit for all of these things that have happened in my life, so therefore, it would be right for me to say, I didn't do this for myself. These are gifts from God, and I thank God for all of his great blessings. God is so very good. And so, because David has seen God's goodness in his life, he also prays in verse 1, God, keep me safe. You are my refuge. You're the one who's going to protect and provide for me. So then we go to Acts chapter 17. And the reason we chose this text is because when the Catechism talks about the providence of God, it footnotes a number of different scripture passages, and this is one of them, Acts 17, 24 through 28. And the setting of this reading could hardly be more different than Psalm 16. Uh, the theology is remarkably similar, but this time 
we do have someone who's a believer. His name is Paul. He's a missionary. But he is speaking to a group of people that are not only not Jewish, they are not Christian, maker of heaven and earth. So uh, Paul has to have a different starting point with this particular audience. They are steeped in Greek philosophy, and they're right there in one of the leading cities of Greece, Athens, and they're in the place where different philosophies were often discussed in the Areopagus. But don't get the wrong impression. These people agree that they don't believe in the God that Paul believes in, but they don't agree with each other either. Some of them are Stoics, and some are Epicureans, and the Stoics believe in fate, sort of their version of uh, the, the, the non-theistic predestination. Stuff just happens. It's all going to happen. We can't change it. It's all predetermined. The Epicureans, on the other hand, believe that everything happens by chance. So the, the universe is random. And so nothing is predetermined. And these are the primary alternatives to believing that God is in charge. If God is in charge, then either something or someone else has done it, other gods or whatever, or it all happens by chance. So Paul wants to preach Christ to this diverse audience in Athens. What they all have in common is that they all believe there are lots of gods that we can't see. And they're almost postmodern in the sense that they believe that whatever God works for you is okay. We love to get together and talk about the latest ideas about God and philosophy. So yeah, this new guy Paul is here. Let's hear him as well. And they're fine with Paul until he gets to the point of the resurrection. Because as soon as you get to the resurrection of Jesus, this faith that we believe is not one of many. It is unique in its proclamation of truth, and it actually eliminates competing truths. And so that's when they get upset with Paul. But meanwhile, before he gets there, Paul has been walking around the city, and he sort of has has noticed some things that are inscriptions on their various monuments, maybe quotations they would write on plaques and so forth. And some of it had to do with an incident that happened about 600 years earlier when a deathly plague came to Athens. And so many of the citizens died that all the people who believed in all these different gods were uh, trying to figure out which god is responsible for sending the plague and how are we going to make him happy so, or her happy so that this plague will stop. And so a visitor from the island of Crete named Epimenides, Epimenides came to Athens and he said, I'll tell you what you need to do. You need to bring a flock of sheep to the Areopagus and then drive them out. And wherever they lie down, make an altar to one of your gods. And that way you're sacrificing to all of them. But there might be a god that you overlooked. So why don't you take one more spot and why don't you sacrifice to an unknown god? So build an altar to a god that you don't know about. And Paul's thinking when he sees that, I've got my entry point. And he says to them, you've got an altar here to an unknown god. Let me tell you about the god you don't know about. This God that you haven't named is the Lord of heaven and earth. And everything that is in this world, he has made, Paul says. He's made the world and everything in it. And he says he doesn't live in temples that are built by human hands. He himself gives life and breath and everything else. So what is Paul doing? He's saying, in other words, I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. God is self-sufficient. He doesn't need us We need him. And in this context, then Paul goes on to articulate what we have labeled the providence of God. Verse 26. 
From one man he made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth, and he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. You may think that migrations and politics and wars and treaties created national borders, but Paul says, no, I believe that this God that you don't know about, the one who made heaven and earth, is actually the God who predetermined where all of these boundaries are. Verse 27, Paul says, God did this so that people would perhaps seek him and reach out for him. Now remember that Paul is almost single-handedly the hinge that went from the, the, the message about God being for Jews only to including Gentiles of every race and nation. Paul seems to be very aware of his part. And he doesn't say so here, but I'm going to tell you what else I think he's aware of. He's aware of that he couldn't be there in Greece if it weren't for the Greeks who had conquered the known world and forced their system of Hellenization on the known world so that wherever Paul went, people would be able to speak Greek. What an amazing thing. He's going like, God did that. I can talk to you and you can understand me because of what you thought, or a lot of people thought, they're in Greece, so they don't think it's a bad thing. But a lot of thought was that people thought it was a bad thing. Everybody had to learn Greek. Now I can go anywhere and speak Greek and people can hear the gospel. God was preparing us for this. And furthermore, the Greeks thought it was a bad thing that the Roman Empire came next, but the Romans had made the roads that now Paul can get anywhere he needs to go rather easily along the, what, they would, what we would call their interstate highway system. So Paul is saying, do you realize that all of these, the rise and falls of, fall of empires, it's a God thing so that I can be here today and I can preach to you. God did this so that people would seek for him and reach out and find him. And then he adds, he is not far from any one of us, verse 27, and shows his familiarity with their culture and what was in their city by quoting two quotes that, with which they would have been familiar. One of them is actually from Epimenides. For in him we live and move and have our being. So he's saying there's some truth in what you believe. But let me tell you who it is. It's God in him we live and whom move and have our being. And he also quotes a Stoic philosopher. We are his offspring. Notice that Paul with this audience doesn't quote the Bible to them. He quotes a starting point with which they might be familiar. So yes, both David and Paul, and you can hardly get greater giants in the Old and New Testament, unless you're talking about Moses and Jesus. But these giants, both David and Paul, join the other writers of Scripture in saying that God is fully in charge of everything that happens. But it's also important not to overlook in both texts, because this also is true in other parts of the Bible, that we're not saying the same thing as the secular physicist, that stuff is just predetermined by fate. We believe in a personal God, the Almighty, the Father who made heaven and earth. And we also believe that this providence of God does not overrule human uh, responsibility and our choice. And so whatever label you want to put on it, predestination or sovereignty or whatever, In Psalm 16, David says, God did all this for me. He's been so good to me. But in the middle of that psalm, he says, but those who run after other gods will suffer more and more. In other words, you've got to make a choice to follow this God. And in Acts chapter 17, Paul is talking about how God ordered everything in creation, but he also says God did this so that 
people would seek him. And later on, he says, he commands all people everywhere to repent because he will judge the world with justice. So whatever you believe about the providence of God, it never relieves you and me of our responsibility. So what do we do with all of this, this scripture and this reflection on the providence of God? The Heidelberg Catechism, uh, very wisely, in each area of doctrine, says what difference does this make to us? And the answer on the providence of God is it, it gives three results. Number one, we are more patient in adversity. Number two, we're more thankful in times of blessing. And number three, we, are, we increase our trust in the God who is in charge of everything. So if you're going to write down three words from this sermon, I would say when you think about the providence of God, it's about patience, gratitude, and trust. And if I don't leave you with patience, gratitude, and trust, I don't think I've done my job. I want to add a fourth one, which is kind of presumptuous on the part of a little preacher in Hickory, North Carolina, to add to the Heidelberg Catechism. But I want to say the purpose of this doctrine is also humility. And humility is really at the root of patience and gratitude and trust. Because God's in charge and I'm not. So if whatever you think about this or any other topic of Christian teaching and theology makes me arrogant, I've missed the point. If your theology doesn't make you humbler, then go deeper. Because at the end of the day, the doctrine of the God, the providence of God means that he's God and I'm not. And if he's in charge, I'm not. I believe because God is God and I'm not. I repent because God is God and I'm not. I try to make God honoring wise choices in my daily life because God is God and I'm not. I work for justice Uh, and reconciliation in this world because God is God and I'm not. I witness to the truth that comes from Jesus because God is God and I'm not. So if you're going to write these words in your Bible, maybe put them also on your mirror at home or on your dashboard in your car because this is what we're to take with us, right? Patience and gratitude and trust and humility. But I also want to say it's possible to overthink this topic. So, uh, and this is sort of maybe my own, my own prejudice about it, but it seems to me when people start thinking about the providence of God, they're going like, well, who did decide what tie I was going to wear today? Was that, a, was that God or was it me? So, God, I know you've to Panera or should I go to, I was going to say Chick-fil-A, but they're not open on Sunday. So, um, All right, so, you know, but the point is you can overthink this and you can kind of get lost in the details. And the Bible actually doesn't do that, nor does the catechism teach us to get lost in the details. It teaches us to look at the larger picture of life and to remember in this larger picture, God is in charge of rain and drought. He's in charge of health and sickness. He's in charge of good things and bad things. And not to get too focused on the minutia or it might actually drive us crazy. So the, the Christian uh, response to the providence of God uh, oftentimes sounds like it's inconsistent to people. I will freely admit, when something good happens to you and you share that with me, 
If you haven't said it, I will say it. And if you've said it, I will affirm it. That's a God wink. What a great thing that God did for you. But if you, on the other hand, tell me that you lost your job or your dad just died or your, uh, you know, your, your wife is sick or especially the great tragedies that we faced, your child died, I'm not going to, my first answer is not going to be, you know what, God did that. He's in charge of everything. God, it's God's providence that did that. That's a God wink on your life. So doesn't that seem a little inconsistent to you? Like, I'm going to say when good things happen, this is a God moment, but when bad things happen, I'm not going to say that, at least not in those direct ways, at least not in my first comment. So I, it seems to me that most Christians struggle more with the bad things happening and God's part in that than we do with the good things happening. And I think that's really okay. Like, it's okay to affirm God's goodness when these wonderful things happen. But I want to close my sermon by reflecting a little bit on the times when the bad things happen. I have this conversation every year with my uh, confirmation class. And I start listing some bad things that have happened uh, in my ministry or in life. And I may mention the Holocaust or I may mention, uh, you know, a five-year-old who died of leukemia uh, in our church family. And I say to them, like, what is your answer to why bad things happen in the world? And typically their answers are, big surprise, 11 and 12-year-old answers, right? They stick their hands up and they've got like the, oh, well, it's because maybe somebody did something bad and this happened to them. Or maybe it's because if they think about it, they'll know that some good will come out of this. Uh, And so whatever their answer is, it's typically the similar answer to the one I gave at 11 years old right? Maybe God didn't want Doug to have his driver's license. So then I asked them, whatever their answer is, I said, would, would that work for you as a pastor when you get a phone call that a 17-year-old just died suddenly in a car accident? Is that what you'd say? Maybe he did something bad or that some good is going to come out of that? Does it work for you as a response to the Holocaust? So then we wrestle a little bit more with this, and I say to them, uh, there are some things that Christians don't say when bad things happen. The number one thing that we don't say is there's no God. So people wrestle with that, and it's okay. Even God can, can handle it if you struggle, like, where is God or is there a God? God can wrestle with that kind of honesty, but the Christian answer is never there's no God. The second Christian, the second answer that's not the Christian answer is, I got this, that's easy. All right, so any answer that you give that sounds like it ties it up in a bundle is not really the way the Bible handles the tough things of life. And so my goal in this sermon was not, in fact, I thought about this all week, and I I just want to say my goal is not at the end of this sermon to resolve very complex matters for you. It's not to be the most profound person you ever heard and you go out of the church thinking, oh, my pastor explained to me, now I, I'm fully settled about why every, bad things happen, why every bad thing happens. In fact, that's quite the opposite. I'll get to that in a moment. My goal is, um, let me just say that the need to articulate why To come up with a reason or figure God out is adolescent Christianity. I'm not even saying it's a bad place to start. It's like we need to grow up beyond having to say, I've got this, I've got the answer. So then when when I'm finished that part, I say to my confirmands, okay, 
then what is the Christian response when bad things happen? And the number one response is we trust God. Even when we don't understand, we just trust because we've come to know who he is. We're even more thankful for our blessings because we realize that whatever happened to somebody else could have happened to me and I'm, you know, I've been blessed. We also pray for those who suffer. And we not only pray, but our prayers lead us to action. And so we give and we love and we serve. We show up when people suffer. We demonstrate our care, whether it's from a text message or from an in-person, or whether it's actually, what can I do for you to help? Sometimes it's a casserole, but we Christians, our instinct is, when somebody's hurting, we need to show up. And then we also confess our sins, because we realize that even when bad things happen to someone that seems like a direct result of a bad thing that they did, a kid gets in trouble and goes to jail, we realize there, but for the grace of God go I. So, We don't judge them and we don't say, yes, I'm sure that automatically happened because of that. Instead, we turn it inward and we say, you know what, Lord, what is there in my life that you want to deal with today? We confess our sins. We realize that we are are no more deserving or less deserving of bad things than anyone else. We're all broken and wounded and far from God except for what he does on our behalf. So we don't believe the random things are accident, but we, neither do we believe that we have better things because we're better people. But the best answer that I give to the confirmands in response to the suffering that's in the world is Jesus. Because the, Christian, the distinctively Christian response to suffering is that we have a God who doesn't keep his distance from our painful world. He doesn't sit up there in heaven sort of pontificating how we should respond to him. Instead, God steps into our world. He has come into our world and he knows what it's like to be poor. And he knows what it's like to be rejected. He knows what it's like to be in a family with all of the trials and joys of that. He knows what it's like to have people listen to you and love you and also people who hate you. He knows what it's like to suffer unjustly. In fact, the greatest injustice was done to the most innocent person who ever lived. And as a result came the greatest good, the offer of salvation to all people. And so whether or not we can see it, we believe in a God who can redeem suffering and evil and pain, but we don't have to like try to figure out the reason that he did this thing or that thing. We just know that that's the kind of God that we have. And the reason we know that's the kind of God that we have is because of Jesus. And really, when you think about it, I don't have to resolve all of the other questions about why and what and how deep and why them and why not me or vice versa because ultimately, he's enough. God is why. Jesus is why. I can be patient in adversity and thankful in blessings and trusting in all things because his love humbles me. Let us pray together. Our Father, we thank you for the hope of the gospel, and we thank you especially for the way 
that Jesus has shown us your face and your hands and your ears. And in his suffering and death, and especially by his resurrection, we have our hope. And so we commit to those to you today who are suffering from grief or loss or uncertainty or pain. We pray that in this, uh, for those who are here in the sound of my voice, your Holy Spirit would do what I can't do and minister encouragement and hope to them. And we pray that for those whom we will rub shoulders with this week who are struggling, that we'll not be those who try to give them tied up, easy answers, but we will those be those whose faces and voices and arms and toes represent you coming to us and being hope in human form. We ask this in the name of Jesus who taught us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.